Welcome to HBCU Tour 68, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Isaiah Smalls, and I attend Morehouse College in Atlanta. I'm Simone Benson, Morgan State University in Baltimore. I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, uh, gang, we're recording this program uh, the Friday before the second through the seventh rounds of the NFL draft. This has become a huge spectacle. The draft has become a great spectacle. But there's a lot more to that. You've got a lot of people whose careers and hopes Riding on this, uh, riding on this draft, uh, Taylor Reynolds is a graduate of James Madison University. He's a former cornerback for the Duke Dogs, and he's hoping to be drafted. And he's joined us. Hey, Taylor, thank you, man. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Oh no, pleasures are so. So you've been you've been checking this out, man. I, I know you probably grew up thinking about the NFL draft and. What it would be like being in that position? What do you think so far of, of, of how the first couple of days have, have gone? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, the first couple of days have been definitely hectic. Um, the draft was definitely stirred up by some off-the-field controversy. But, um, you know, looking at the first round, you know, a lot of teams made some picks that, you know, I didn't expect and a lot of people didn't expect. So what what, what caught you off guard? What, what, what caught you by surprise? Um, definitely the first uh, five picks, you know, um, looking at the mock draft, you know, you expect certain players to go certain certain slots, but uh, the first five to ten picks were definitely a surprise to me. Let, let me ask you this. It, it's, so, it's so rare that we have a get somebody on the show who's actually involved in the draft. So how, how did you prepare for the draft? I mean, when you, come, when you came in, did you – where did you expect to be drafted? It, it sounds like you know a lot about the draft. What was your preparation for the draft? Where did you expect to be drafted? And sort of, where, you know, where do you go from from here? What do you think is going to be happening? Well, speaking with my agent, you know, he's he's explained a lot of how the draft's going to work. And he's explained also, you know, my draft stock and, you know, where I would have a good chance of landing. So I would say anywhere between the fourth and the seventh round, um, you know, a lot of knock on uh, guys coming out of FCS or 1AA is, oh, you know, the level of competition and then speed of the game and things like that. But personally, I think football is football. So, you know, I've been just preparing for the draft, just just keeping a level head and, you know, not getting too high or too low. That's a very, that's a very interesting point you made, Taylor. Um, we have at North Carolina A&T, there is a running back named Tariq Cohen, who's um, projected to be the first HBCU player off the board, had an amazing career at A&T. And he, and I, in my interview with him, he talked a little bit about what you're talking about when you're talking about the how smaller schools are being overlooked in the draft. Do you feel that is, that that's fair to you guys? Oh, definitely. Um, definitely it's not fair, you know. Um, when we're getting recruited, you know, coaches are looking at size. And coming out of high school, I mean, they're looking at size, position, upside, so, you know, sometimes, you know, the best players don't always get the opportunity to go to the big schools. But, you know, we go to smaller schools, we work hard, and, you know, we make a name for ourselves. And I've watched uh, Tariq play, you know, 
multiple times. My best friend goes to A and T, plays wideout. So you know, Tariq, I think he's gonna he's gonna have a great great career in the NFL. How has your friends and your family and even your teammates reacted to you and all, you being in the draft? Um, well, you know, they're very excited. Uh, me coming from where I come from, a small city, a small town, not too many people know of Delaware. So well, I'm from Delaware myself, so I understand. Oh, you are? <laughs> I, I, There's I two of you. There. I was born there. 302, 302. But, uh, yeah, they're very excited. I mean, but it's my job to keep them kind of, you know, calm and let them know that the draft is not what they expect it to be because a lot of people are naive to how the process works and there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes behind the things that, you know, play a part in the draft. So I've, I've just told them to just remain calm. Can you give us kind of like a look into how the draft process actually works? Since you said there's more behind the scenes, you kind of um, paint us a picture of how um, the process is. I would say um, a lot of these guys seem like they're being draft drafted uh, to to teams that are in their demographic areas where they grew up. You know, so a guy from Florida may get drafted by a Florida team. Um, a guy from Texas may get picked up by a Texas team. I would say it's a lot of that going on. And then, you know, depending on who your agent is, you know, they may have certain connections to a certain general managers, certain people in the office that, you know, may say, hey, we're going to take a shot on this guy. So I would say a lot of that goes on that people don't really know about, you know, like like the, like you guys asked me, you know, y'all, you thought Deshaun Watson was the best player, best quarterback in the draft. But, you know, a quarterback from Texas Tech went before him. So, you know, there's politics in that as well. I have a quick question about your team visits. Uh, is every visit with each team the same, or do they make you do different uh, drills or talk about different uh, schemes? Uh, talk to me a little bit about your draft visits. Well, on my on my visit with the Atlanta Falcons, that was just strictly a private visit. Um, brought me in, had me talk to the coaching staff. Um, I got to tour the facilities. Um, but on my next visit with the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, I did the same thing, but I did an on-the-field workout for about 45 minutes, got to talk to the DB coach a little bit. So um, both visits were kind of similar, but one, you know, I got to show my ability on the field. Which one do you feel is showing more interest to you? Um, I would say both teams are uh, equally interested in me, you know. Um, there are a lot, been a lot of other teams I've been talking to as well that haven't had a chance to work me out or fly me out. But um, I've been, you know, receiving a lot of interest from teams. So, Taylor, I just have one more question about the draft process. There's been in recent years um, questions about the level of questions that have been asked to certain draft prospects. Are they too intrusive? Do they want to know too much? Um, I just want to know, have you been asked anything that you felt was inappropriate in, in like, trying to get one of these NFL-type jobs? Or did you feel like your process went smoothly? And do you know of any other players that have been, um, you know, in, asked inappropriate questions throughout their draft process? Uh, fortunately, I, I haven't been asked any inappropriate questions. And, um, you know, the question that people ask me, I have no problem answering. I think, you know, some players may have something to hide, something in their past, you know, maybe getting in trouble with law enforcement, you know, failing a drug test. But me, I, I mean, I have a pretty clean slate, so I haven't been, you know, opposed to answering any questions or uncomfortable answering any questions. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, Taylor, let me ask you this. Since you bring up the police blotter uh, and you've been clean, you know, you're, you're about to um, – you know, go, you know, become an employee of an NFL team. And, you know, that, you know, all eyes are going to be on you. And, you know, every year you hear players being accused of sexual assault and putting themselves in position. What types of conversations, even, you know, when you were playing, 
What types of conversations have you had with coaches or parents or teammates just about when you're in the public eye, how do you have to carry yourself? How do you, you know, avoid putting yourself into, you know, compromising positions? Yes. Um, I, well, I, my family, you know, they they provide a lot of support and they just tell me all the time, you know, watch who you're hanging out with. Make sure you're making the right decisions because, you know, you're a target. And a lot of these guys out here that that I used to or I grew up with or I used to hang out with, you know, we're on different paths now. So that's definitely something to take in mind. You know, once you, you move up to the next level, you know, it's even from from starting from high school, once you move to college, you know, your friends change, people you associate with change. Uh, a lot of the decisions you're making are going to change because, you know, you're chasing something different than other people. So basically, you know, just staying out of trouble, you know, watching who your friends are, I would say. Do you feel like that's the main thing when it comes to keeping your nose clean is who you associate with? Because, as you see, we have players in this draft who haven't been indicted on any crimes but have have been accused of stuff, and that has uh, been detrimental to their draft process. So how do you feel, question one, how do you feel teams should handle accusations against a player? And two, just, just speak on how do you keep yourself away from the bad crowd, so to say, and keep your nose clean? Um, I would say teams should handle accusations based on a player's hist- past history. You know, if if a player has had a clean slate and, you know, has done the right thing, then, you know, I, I feel teams should definitely, you know, give them, you know, a second chance. But players that have, you know, some, some, some laundry and, you know, just constant headaches off the field, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how, you know, teams – would handle it but you know I wouldn't give someone that much leeway you know when there's so many great players out here that have done the right thing Uh, do you do you feel sort of getting back to the um you know sort of the business of football would it be what's the difference between let's say you getting drafted in the next couple days and then going to a to a camp as a as a free agent well I would just say you know if a team decides to draft you uh, usually there's a signing bonus involved and they're they're looking to invest money in you as opposed to a player that signs a free agent contract, you know, that a team passed up on, you know, that has to prove themselves a little bit more. Um, you see a lot of guys, you know, they get drafted and they get the money and, you know, they get complacent and there's things like that uh, as opposed to, you know, we see a lot of the free agent and late round guys blossom in the, in the NFL. You know, the New England Patriots have do it year after year with, you know, players that we've never heard of. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just say that. How, how much homework have you done? In other words, I mean, you're a cornerback. The league is a – I mean, the NFL has become a passing, <laughs> a passing league. Have you studied rosters? Do you know in terms of – whose contracts are up, and do you have an idea where you think you would be a good fit, where you think that you would have the optimum opportunity to make the, make you know, make you a roster? Um, yes, I've, I've done a little background checks on teams and um, definitely study their roster, study their style of play. Um, just by watching uh, last season, you know, um, there are certain teams out there that, that do – what my co- what my team in college did. So there are, there are a lot of similarities, and um, I think I fit well on a, on a, a number of teams um, based on what they do as far as press man or moving corners to safety, having to play nickel, and just being versatile. So um, I've definitely done my homework on a lot of teams, and I think I fit well in a couple systems. So 
Taylor, um, speaking of college, what made you decide to attend um, James Madison University to begin with instead of a, um, an HBCU? Um, well, I wasn't opposed to any HBCUs. Um, the only HBCUs that came after me were Dell State, um, I believe, and Gramlin State. But um, going into my decision, I just uh, I looked at, you know, size of the institution. I looked at, you know, the facilities, the education background. And I really wanted to go somewhere where if football was over for me or I would have broken my leg or something that I would enjoy going to school. So um, based on my background and um, things like that, you know, I chose James Madison. Did financials play um, a part with choosing uh, a PWI over HBCU? Um, yes, they definitely did. You know, financials always play a part, but, you know, as far as the social life, that didn't really play a part at all, you know. When you talk about the NFL platform and the platform that it gives certain guys and certain players, um, how do you feel that platform should be utilized? You see a whole lot of guys who come out and talk on social issues here in America. Do you feel like that's the um, the obligation or the expectation of NFL player? Do you feel that they should be able, that they should be that they should do that? Uh, how do you, what's your stance on that? How do you feel about that? Um, as far as you know, things that go that are going on in the world, you know, people have their opinions, but I feel like NFL players, um, any any pro athlete, you know, needs to carry themselves, you know, in a in a good manner and just just be a good role model, you know, not not get too into you know some of the social things that are going on um i don't want to really get specific on colin kaepernick but you know he made a decision and he's going to have to live with that decision you know some other guys you know made the decision to not get involved in that so i would say as a pro athlete you know you just you just have to pick and choose your battles and pick and choose you know what's for you and what's not uh, james madison did, did did any of this stuff come up uh last season were there things where you guys because I'd imagine you were either the captain you were one of the team leaders um, were there situations that that came up where you guys had to have meetings to decide what to do or what not to do as a, as a team um definitely you know um always when guys get in trouble you know you have some younger guys not doing well in classes um you have some younger guys that may disrespect teacher professors some guys not going to class, guys being late for workout. So, you know, you always, as a leader, you always have to bring the group together and just kind of remind people, you know, what the ultimate goal is. But I would say this last season, we didn't have too many off-the-field issues, and, you know, that was paramount to our success of winning the national championship, you know. Not having those off-the-field issues, as many of them as we've had in the past, allowed us to stay, remain focused and, you know, live up to our dreams of winning a national championship. So we didn't have too many distractions this season. Our guest has been Taylor Reynolds. He's a former defensive back with James Madison University. He's in the draft room, and he's looking forward to being drafted and looking forward to a great NFL career. We're looking forward to when he blows up, him coming back on our show <laughs> and, uh, and not saying he's too busy. Remember, we had you here first. <laughs> hey, but Taylor, you've been really gracious with your time, man. We all wish you the um, the best of luck. And I just have one question before we let you go. What's been the best thing uh, when you look back on your career? What's been the best thing about being a a scholarship player, a football player uh, at, at at a major university? What 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 is something that you'll kind of always remember that you cherish about the experience? 
Um, well, one thing I always remember is the locker room. You know, our locker room at James Madison uh, throughout the years, it always got closer. Even though we've had three different head coaches and three different coaching changes, you know, our locker room was always close. So I would say the the life the lifetime bond that I'm going to have with, you know, a lot of those guys and, you know, just having the opportunity to be part of something that special. And I think winning that FCS national championship, you know, just put icing on the cake to my senior year. And like I said, you know, I built a lifetime bond with a lot of, with a lot of those guys. So I'm just grateful for that. Hey, well, congratulations on the championship. Um, we wish you, you know, that that'll be the first of many championships. Uh, anyway, our guest is Taylor Reynolds. Hey, Taylor, thanks so much, man, and congratulations on a great college career and uh, what I'm sure is going to be a great career in the NFL. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. From football, we're going to get into political football. Uh, President Obama resurfaced uh, last week after a um, four-month vacation. Um, curious, what did, I'd like to ask each of you, uh, when we talk about the president resurfacing, uh, I want to know what you thought about him coming back to public view, but I'm just curious for each of you, um, what were you, where were you and what were you doing when Obama was, was elected? Um, Simone. Um, on his first term, he was, I was a junior in high school and I just remember it being an amazing time because you, this is the first African American president and it was just a, a, a feeling of just excitement and my, I remember my parents sitting me and my sisters down and just telling us how important this moment in history is and that we're able to live through this, live through this and actually see it firsthand. And so I remember I was just a junior in high school, eyes wide open and just excited. And it's like, hey, yo, I was like this, all my friends were just happy and excited. So it was a good moment. Um, the second term, I remember I was, uh, I was able to vote at that time. And um, me and some of my friends, I was going to a community college at the time. And me and some of my friends, we all got into one car and drove down and voted together. And made sure we just got as many people as we could and just made sure we all put in our votes. So um, it was just an amazing time for both terms. I think that's very interesting what you say, Shimon, what you say Simone, when you talk about you were a junior in high school when he first got elected. It brings me back to where I was when he first got elected in 08. I was, um, I was a fifth grader in my elementary school class. And um, it was funny because the election day was on my birthday. Uh, that year. Oh, God, you made me feel old, Donovan. Fifth grade. But yeah, it's just, <laughs> but it's just, it's just crazy to me to see how far, you know, he's come and, you know, we've come over these, li- over these last eight years, excluding what happened this uh, past fall. But, you know, it's definitely good to see him back out. Definitely good to see him resurface. And I know he's made, he's had a big impact on my life just as a role model to look up to. So I'm just curious, Donovan, where were you in fifth grade? Where was I in fifth grade? Yeah, I was still in, I was still in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I went to Inglewood Elementary. You know, shout out to yeah. 205. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Isaiah, what about you? I was I was uh, in seventh grade. I had just moved uh, from Columbus, Ohio to Bear, Delaware. And, you know, I was 
very naive. I was still trying to find my place just uh, in, in my school. And I didn't really grasp the full weight of the situation at the time. But I do remember, like Simone said, my mom sitting me down and I, she was in tears and uh, just telling me that this is a very, very, very big moment. And personally, she thought that she would never see the day that this would happen. And, you know, I'm very fast forwarding, you know, eight years later, I'm very excited and very happy to see him back because, you know, I'm looking forward to him embracing th this new role as an agent for change. Uh, he said he spoke about it in his final speech that, you know, even though he's leaving the office of presidency, he still wants to make an impact. And I think that's tremendous. It's funny how our business works, guys. You know, you could criticize anything. And some people are actually criticizing Obama because they felt he stayed away too long, four months. What, what did you guys feel? Do you think he stayed away four months was too short, too long? What, what no. Did you think? Not at all. I would have, I've been gone longer. <laughs> after everything he went through, after everything he went through, he deserved to have a break. Like because, I mean, You could only imagine, you saw his hair turn colors. <laughs> yeah, the, so uh, the I, I looked up his hair Right, did stay steady. You can never, you'll never I mean, see you Obama with, without a nice hairline. That's very, very true. I, one of the things I looked up and saw that was very interesting was that being president, you age twice as fast. So he was in there eight, eight years. So you know, that's like sixteen years basically that he was in that office. And so four months, I would have been out for a year. Yeah, what, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all no, would not have seen me. Aging. And then you talk about but aging 16 years. Obama really aged 24. All the stuff he had to deal exactly. with in office exactly. for, those eight, for those eight years. And you tell me he can't very, take very four true. months off? Man. Exactly. When I saw him do the yeah. speech at um, was it what was the University of Chicago, the speech he just did, he didn't even have a tie on. He was like, look, y'all, just, yeah. just getting Obama me. Cooling. He didn't even wear it. He, he was glowing. He had no tie. He was chilling. He was laid back. And I don't blame him because I could, I've definitely, um, and, and he got to spend time with his family the way that, exactly. you know, without every, without, you know, worrying about having to worry about this, you know, the things that presidents have to worry about. He got to just, yeah, the country, right. I couldn't get it out the country. But the thing is like, I would, I, I, I promise I would have still been gone. Y'all wouldn't see me for about three years. Yeah, they would have seen me. <laughs> Let me ask each of you this. Um, you know, from from uh, Donovan, who was a fifth grader, to uh, when he was first elected, to Isaiah, who was in seventh grade, to Simone, who was in high school. What do you think his legacy, uh, well, what, what's his legacy meant to each of you um, when you look back on it? Uh, why, why don't we start with you, Isaiah? Well, personally, uh, I'm very big on uh, the media's portrayal of black men. And so if you turn on the TV, watch movies, you know, we don't have a very positive image displayed. And so uh, to have a black male in a, that position of power, you're the leader of the free world. Uh, it really boosted my confidence. And I'm sure uh, it did the same for Donovan and many black boys uh, just across uh america and it was i can't stress enough how happy i was to see him back because i really am looking forward to this next chapter in his life uh, no definitely what isaiah said is spot on just to me his legacy is just is helping to inspire people like oh like especially me being a young black male just inspiring 
us all across the country to say that you can do anything that you put your mind to doing and that the even though the perception is still out there on you that it's starting to break and like you can start to seep through and it's there is like hope on the other side that's that's one of the big things i really took from his legacy and just the fact that the way he was so persistent and the way he was so determined he had to battle through a lot of stuff you know being the first african-american president there were many shots being thrown at him and he handled every single one with just such class and such dignity and you know that really was just it really was just a role model for me to for me to look up to as a young black male as as somebody who knows how to carry themselves and you can just look to obama for that and that's, that's why i think his biggest um part of his legacy comes from well, for me, um, his legacy meant so much. And and the one word that comes to mind is integrity. And I think he showed so much integrity. And even with, um, from my standpoint, I really looked up to I looked up to Obama, but I definitely looked up to Michelle. Because um, seeing this gracious, black, educated, strong black woman on, by his side being there every step of the way, um, it just gave us such a positive image that was needed in the African-American community, um, opposed to what you would see on the me- on media with reality show generation that we're in today. And I just think that the, so much integrity and grace was shown. And that is the legacy, I believe, that he left. Let, let me let um, me ask you, for us. Uh, you, you thank, thanks, Amal. Let me ask you, uh, you, you fellows this um, before we uh, move on. You know, the, the presidency was symbolic, you know, uh, but the, it was and progressive on a lot of levels, but clearly it didn't mark the end of racism or racial inequality. So, so Donovan, what do you think needs to be? And this is each of you. Um, what do you think needs to to change, evolve, or improve in in the black community? And do you think there's still such a thing as a national black community? Uh, yes, I do think there's a thing as the national black community in America. I think the number one thing that the black community needs to do as a whole is to unify. Um, I definitely think, especially in today's day and age, we have so many of our black or of our black members that are not focused on the same goals. You know, you have a lot of people, especially when you talk about police brutality, you have many black people talking about black on black crime. But, you know, that wasn't the subject matter at the moment. Yes, black-on-black crime is is a matter that we need to fix as a community. But I believe together is how we're going to fix that. I don't believe that spreading apart and doing our own individual things, even however successful we might be, I don't believe that's really the solution to come and fixing these different issues in the black community. So I believe, first, our, our main thing we need to do is come together as a community in general. And then I think we can come up with solutions to fix some of these issues. And so that's the way I feel about the black community. Uh, yeah, I feel like Donovan hit it, hit the nail right on the head. Unity is very key. Um, if we go back to when we as a people were first starting to be enslaved, the way that they were able to do that was we sometimes uh, certain sex would sell a neighbor. And I feel like that sort of disconnect is terrible just for the black community. We have to all come together and just – you know, just to reiterate with uh, what uh, Donovan said, talking about the uh, police brutality, I, I anytime I'd go on social media and after someone, uh, the unfortunate killing of another black male, you would always see someone saying, you know, 
wow, like, you guys are really up in arms about this, but, you know, why aren't you guys talking about the black community, uh, the, all the black and black crime in, in your communities? And it's just, you know, that's not the issue at hand, you know. Uh, black men are being killed by police for doing absolutely nothing, and you're over here talking about uh, the black-on-black -black crime in the community. There's white-on-white -white crime, and we don't talk about that. So I just feel like th they're missing the point, and we all just got to come together as a people. And um, so I, oh, I definitely, I definitely agree with both of you. And I also think it also starts um, within the community, the, the black community, that we have to stop separating ourselves um, in categories. And, what, and when I say that, I say, for instance, you hear um, somebody, you hear the term talking white, or you also hear the term of, of separating ourselves by skin tone. Um, that's that that plays a huge role in the division that we already have in our community, and I just think that it is okay. Um, we should make it a norm to to know that it is okay, no matter where you come from, where you grew up. If you grew up in the hood, if you didn't grow up in the hood, you grew up in the suburbs. No matter where you came from, we are all still we are all still a part of the black community because we are vibrant. We are we are all strong, and we just might have more slang than one another, or we might one might a person might just talk with more diction than another person, or you know, or a fast paced talker, or somebody from Philly has a different accent. But no matter what. Um, just to tie in together with Donovan saying we are we should be unified and I think that it, that's what's missing is that we're putting each other in these categories that don't even exist they only exist in our mind mm. so yeah uh, uh, just I sh she brought up a really good uh, really spoken great like a two more uh, person just I remember talking with uh, my my second family uh, they're from the the matriarch is from jamaica and so when she moved here one of the things that uh struck me was that she said that a lot of the african americans here would look at her differently because she spoke with she had she obviously had a jamaican accent at first and they would look at her differently they would treat her differently and they would sometimes you know uh hurl racial slurs at her and i was just surprised because i was like you're but they're black too you're black you can she's i i'm looking at her she's darker than me and so i'm like what that does that doesn't make sense and so just to you know reiterate the unity thing we can't try to separate ourselves by you know i'm african-american i'm here you know i'm caribbean i'm over here we all have to find the common ground well you know i think that uh uh in, in coming weeks you guys have really hit on something very very uh, very, very crucial. Uh, you've identified a problem, and I think now it's how do we now come together? How do you achieve that unity? You know, uh, in sports, you see the great teams are the teams where the locker room is always great and locker room leaders, and you find a way to keep stuff outside the locker room to achieve unity. So I, I'm looking forward to these conversations. I'm sure you're having on your various campuses about how do we achieve that unity. Uh, up next... Each of our rodent fellows are going to leave you with a few things to consider. Isaiah starts off. With 13 NBA championships, six Coach of the Month recognitions, and one Coach of the Year award, it seemed as if Phil Jackson could do no wrong. When the Knicks hired Jackson as the team's president in 2014, I praised the organization for selecting someone with a history of success. Despite these achievements, Jackson has somehow managed to single-handedly ruin the Knicks in just three seasons. The Knicks are 76 and 159 since Jackson's hiring, and the list of foolish decisions are mounting. 
first, it was forcing the team to run the triangle offense. Then came the reference to LeBron and his business partners as a posse. Then came the tweets criticizing Melo and questioning his will to win. Jackson's lone accomplishment was drafting Porzingis, but now it seems as if even he is frustrated with the dysfunction that has followed his team like a stray puppy since his arrival. All signs point to Jackson being incompetent, yet the Knicks just picked up his two-year option. At what point will the numerous off-the-court issues begin to tarnish his exceptional coaching legacy? If this chaos continues, it may be sooner than we think. Simone. Thanks, Isaiah. Simone. Looking for a new pair of J's but don't want to pay the full price all at once? Well, the company of firm got you covered. You can now lease your own pair of J's. You can pay monthly payments for a pair of shoes. Lease the J's you want, like a car or a home. The company of firm is allowing stores to offer the service, the offer the service as an option to buy. Let me explain how it works. Once a company has approved the firm as a method of payment, a customer can see what the monthly rent-to-own payment breakdown would be. This method is meant to appeal to the younger audience. I think for the average college student balling on a budget, this is perfect. But maybe it's too good to be true. Of course there's a catch. The shoe comes with an interest rate of about 10%. Seriously? (laughs) I wonder what would happen if you default on a loan. Unfortunately, there's no word on the repercussions of missing a payment. (laughs) Unbelievable. Donovan Dooley is up next. Quarterback A has a record of 32 and 3, has thrown for over 4,000 yards in the last two th- in last two seasons, and is a national champion along with being a two-time Heisman finalist. Quarterback B has a record of 8 and 5, has failed to reach 4,000 yards passing in his one season as a starter, and lost the Sun Bowl to a team without their best player. Would you believe it if I told you quarterback B was drafted over quarterback A? Well, that is exactly what happened in this year's NFL draft. Quarterback A, Deshaun Watson, has been utterly disrespected throughout this entire draft process, and it continued on the first night of the draft. Not only did quarterback B, Mitch Trubisky, get selected 10 slots before Watson, but also quarterback Patrick Patrick Mahomes, the most erratic decision-maker in the quarterback class this year, was chosen before Watson. However, there was a silver lining. Watson will have the opportunity to compete for a playoff spot in Houston with a team that already has many of the right pieces in place. Watch out for Watson to have a Dak Prescott-type season in 2017. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as All Day, What Are Those, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.